lifted hand, just sing this. Come on, if you can get a hold of this, it's a great revelation. I decrease. Exalt and magnify you in this house tonight, Jesus. Hallelujah. The key to spiritual victory is, is very simply put, one word, capacity. Capacity. How much space do you have in your life for God? And when you decrease... You don't make it about you, not about my feelings, not about what I want, not about my desire, not about what I want to accomplish. When you decrease, you increase capacity where he increases. The less of me means the more of him. And the more of him in my life means more victory, more peace, more joy. And so it's about capacity. Less of me means more of him. And so really, it's not about trying to get more of God but you'll never God is everywhere he's omnipresent he's all knowing he's all powerful you're not going to exhaust his resources it's like the peanuts comic he looked in the mirror and he said I found the enemy and the enemy is me the less of me right spiritually mature Christians you can't offend them you can't hurt them why because there's not enough of them in there to even hurt or offend it's it, they're so full of God they have decreased and de-escalated their own desires and wants to the point nothing you say nothing you do is really going to offend them because there ain't enough of them in there to even offend but people that they carry a chip around on their shoulder and they're always getting hurt and always getting offended and always getting sideways. There's way too much of them in there and not enough of him. The key to spiritual victory is I decrease as he increases. Right? And that is a, it's a powerful principle. Powerful principle. It's a good way to check your spiritual health. If you find yourself like, man, lately people just been getting on my nerves. <laughs> Lately, I don't like the way they're looking at me. Like, what have I said to them? 
If you walk in a room full of people and you're convinced somebody's talking about you on the other side of the room, there's too much of you in there. Time for you to decrease and him to increase. And in that, there is peace and joy. Amen. And the abundant life that he promised. God bless you. You may be seated. What a powerful miracle weekend that we had. I've already received three confirmed miracles. People have already, three confirmed miracles already since this weekend. And so I challenge these individuals, and I'm challenging you, if God has already done a work in your life or he's in the process of it, make sure you fill out one of our praise reports. Why? Give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, and make his deeds known among his people. That's what the Bible says. Uh, we... We immediately grant the enemy victory when we're silent about the goodness of God, right? It's, in fact, we are in an immoral society, not necessarily because immorality is winning, but it's more the silence of God's saints. And so when God does something good, make his deeds known. And you say, oh, it's just a small thing, Pastor. I don't want to make a big deal out of it. Nothing God does for you is a small thing, right? Everything deserves God's praise and honor and glory. In all things, the Bible says give thanks. Not just in big things. Because here's what I found out. People that give God the thanks and praise in small things, they see big things. If you're just waiting for God to do something that's going to make the headlines of the, your local paper or going to get everybody's attention, you're probably not going to see that until you start thanking God for taking away the headache that you had in church. And then when you left, he didn't have it. Maybe a small thing, but... Giving God praise for that ensures that God will continue to work in your life and you see some of the bigger things that maybe you're praying about. And so make sure, write down on the praise report, amen, what God did for you. All right, 1 Kings chapter 5. Tonight we're going to be, we have been in a series um, regarding David and uh, some of those in the context of Scripture around that same time. Tonight we're going to be talking about uh, David and Solomon building the temple. Our series has focused on David and Solomon. Uh, tonight, it will be particularly around the time frame in which uh, the temple was being built. And I'm excited about it tonight. We have a powerful series. Looking forward to it. First Kings chapter 5 and verse 5. And behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set up on thy throne in thy room, he shall build an house unto my name. Someone say, my name. My name. So an important truth about God that we want to focus on tonight, for you to think about, uh, you to kind of marinate in, is this. God's plan... And God's promises extend to multiple generations. We kind of talked about that a few minutes ago in that song. But everything that happens in your life, everything that happens in this room, everything happens in your relationship with God is not about you. God's plan and God's promises extend to multiple generations. The truth for my life is, because of that, knowing that, with that constantly in my mind, I will do what God calls me to do. I'll do whatever God wants me to do. 
Because I know that multiple generations are impacted by my decision to either follow God or do my own thing. It's not just about me. Life moves so quickly. We're in the adult class tonight, so most of you understand this. If I was trying to tell this to the hyphen or the youth, they, they're like, well, whatever. You know, it feels like, you know, it's been 10 years. I've been wanting to be 17. I'm 16 now, and it's like 10 years, and I'm still not there yet. You know, when you're that age, it's like time's just barely moving. Then when you start getting our age, it's like, what happened to the last 10 years? And so now we are starting to realize that my decisions relative to me serving God or doing the right thing, they impact generations, and it happens so quickly. I mean, kids that were in my Sunday school class 30 minutes ago were on my platform singing now. And I think about some of the things I, the decisions I made when they were children. Hopefully, thank God, or I did my best back then. I didn't realize how quickly time would move from them being kids in the classroom to on the platform. And so knowing that, keeping that in your mind, every decision that you make, you've got to understand, I am impacting multiple generations. And, you know, it's like that one train car that's linked to multiple cars, 20, 30, 40, 50 cars behind them. You unhitch from the church or from God. You disconnect. The devil will tell you, well, you do your own thing. It's about you. You do you. It ain't, that ain't the way it works. Everybody that watches you, knows you, sees you on social media, definitely if, if they've got your genes and they're in, the, you're, they're in your DNA, everybody that's connected to you behind you is impacted by your decision to disconnect. Right? And so it's important that we remember that. And we'll look at that through the life of David and Solomon. It's so apparent and obvious as you look at their life. You know, we're accustomed to the pace of our world today that it can be very difficult to understand and imagine the dynamics uh, at work hundreds and thousands of years ago. Things were so differently back then. Consider the differences in construction projects. Brother White, think about this. The mighty Hoover Dam was constructed in just five years. The Gateway Arch in St. Louis, how many have ever been in the Gateway Arch? A few years ago, went up in the Gateway Arch. It only took two and a half years to build that. Did you know the majestic Empire State Building? Several years ago, I stood on the Empire State Building. I didn't even know this at the time. Um, was completed in just one year and 45 days. It's incredible. I'm glad I didn't know that as I was standing on top of it. <laughs> I would have preferred it took a little longer. <laughs> Make sure they did a good job. So when we think about how quickly things are built now, you think about houses, like one day you're going to work and you see them clear and land, and the next day you go to work, you see a family moving in, you're like, yeah, what happened? Like, they, like I, I work with a particular builder, and they literally advertise, they make it known that we can build you a house in a little over 30 days. Like, I don't want you to build me a house in 30 days. <laughs> I'm not comfortable with that. And so things have changed. Construction in ancient times was conducted on an entirely different scale. The Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris took 182 years to complete. York Minster, a cathedral in Deangate, England, took 250 years. 
two years to make. The rock city of Petra in Jordan was carved in 450 years. Now, those of you that have worked on a construction project that just didn't seem to end, how would you like to work on one that was 450 years? It never ends. Never ends. And then, at the top of the mountain, the Great Wall of China was completed over the course of approximately 2,000 years. Now, it was not all uncommon for hundreds, if not thousands, of workers to give their entire lives from the moment they were allowed to work, which was probably kids, till the moment they couldn't work any longer as old people, their entire life on one project, and it would not even be completed before they died. Tonight, we will consider the most significant construction project found in Scripture. Now, while the actual building of it remarkably only took seven years, which is incredible for that time period, the process of seeing it rise took much longer and it spanned two generations. What we commonly call Solomon's temple because he was sitting on the throne during its construction actually was only completed in that short time frame only seven years because of the time and the finance, planning, the gathering, the preparing by his father, David. Had it not been for David's commitment to something he would never personally see, the wonder of the temple and all that transpired there would have never been. David was okay working on something that he would never personally see. And because of that, Solomon was able to pick up and complete a project in seven years that should have taken much longer. We all, every one of us in this room right now, should be investing in things that will outlive us. It's a question we must ask ourselves. What are you doing right now in your life that will outlive you? Don't tell me about your job or your money, the house you're building, the car you're buying. That will all go away. All go away. One storm in North Carolina and all of that could be gone. I ask, what are you investing in? What are you doing in your life that will live on after you die? You say, well, my children, obviously. What are you putting in your children that will live on? What are you investing in that long after you're gone, they will point back to you and say, it started there. It continued there. What are you investing in that will outlive you? We should be willing to give our time, our talent, and our treasures to work on kingdom items that may or may not ever be realized during our lives, but will make a huge impact in the generations that follow. One of the things we don't talk about much that the church brings to our life. We think about fellowship. We think about being in the presence of God. We think about church family. All of these benefits about being associated to the church. But you know, one of the greatest benefits about being a part of a great church is that you are investing in something that will outlive you. Without the church, what else would you be doing that would outlive you? Every dime, every dollar, every moment spent that you work on the building or you do something here or you're working in a ministry, you're doing something that will outlive you. Where else in your life do you do that at? 
Without the church, what venue, what opportunity, what place in your schedule would you be a part of that would outlive you? For most people, there wouldn't be anything. And if you think about it, for the overwhelming majority of people that are not associated with a good church who is mission-minded, who invest in children, who's constantly trying to reach out and grow the church, that there is not an area in their life that they consistently every week work on that they know will outlive them. If God doesn't tarry, I want my son to stand behind this microphone and preach the same message I'm preaching. If God doesn't tarry, I want this sanctuary to be five times this size, but I want people to look back saying, thanks be to God for the people that are here tonight that invested and gave and sacrificed, uh, and they will have something that will live on way past them. Otherwise, I think about the people that have already gone on to meet the Lord, that gave their life so we could be here tonight. Right? My mother painted the walls of our first building by herself, the walls of my office. A blue that she loved and nobody else did. She painted it. People worked on that building, gave of themselves. Why? They were investing in something that would be going on long after they were gone. Can you invest in something that you may never see the completion of? Can you invest in something that will outlive you? You see, doing so ensures God's purpose extends beyond any particular person or personality. When you invest in something that's bigger than you and outlive you, suddenly it doesn't become about you. No worker is more important than the other. The individual who drives the last nail is not more valuable than the one who drove the first nail. Right? Had it not been for the former's commitment and contribution, the latter could have never enjoyed the ribbon cutting. Remember our first service in this sanctuary? We just, you know, gym floor, and our real estate agent stood in the back and eyes bugged out because we were losing our mind. <laughs> first time he'd ever seen a Pentecostal church, and man, we gave him a show. How many are, yeah, yeah, pictures of it. I stood right here. I don't, I don't remember. I don't think this platform was like this here. We had like a drop-down platform or something. But I stood up here and I said, church, let me welcome you to your new home. Of course, it, those of you that were not a part of that, our church had no idea what was going on. They went to church down there. And we got up on a Sunday and I said, all right, nobody gets settled in. I, I talked about what God had done and where he had brought us from. We had a slideshow. And then I said, instead of showing you a slideshow of where God's going to take us in the future. How about I just show you firsthand? Get in your cars, follow my dad. And they were like, what? How many remember that? What in the world? And so people was like trudging out of the sanctuary, you know, like, I don't know what's going on. And they got in their car, and my dad was parked at the old building, had his car out there, and he pulled out of the parking lot. And we had this long caravan of people, I mean, <laughs> that almost stretched from the old building than here. And they were going down the road to stop traffic up. And then my dad pulled into here, and people were like, what? You know? And then we got in here, and it was like everybody was too, like they were afraid to get excited. Like, this is probably just something we're leasing for a while, you know? You know? And so they all kind of gathered in this little room, and it was like eerily quiet. Like everybody was afraid to say something. You're like, they didn't want to be that one person going, hey, is this our new church? And then it's like, no. They didn't want to be that. And then I got up and said, Church, welcome to your new home. And then, 
But thank God for every person that invested in that storefront in Anger, invested in Dwight Rowland Road, and thank God for every person that will invest in this so the future can be seen. It can be challenging to keep the big picture in mind. I admit that. When bills are high and stress is high and day-to-day living is killing, it's hard to keep the big picture in mind. It would just seem like it'd be so much easier in, in a lot of ways to, um, to not focus on that. You know, um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's important that we understand that big picture, big picture. Anyone who studied David's life has seen a striking contrast between the best of David and the worst. We look at David's life and we're like, man, is this guy a hero? Is he a villain? Because in this one individual, in this one man, we find a man unwilling to harm King Saul, even though his, yes, thank you, Brother Austin, even though his own life was in jeopardy. He was unwilling to hurt somebody who was trying to hurt him. And yet on the same hand, on, we're talking about the same guy, David, he turns around and slaughters all of Nabal's house just for insulting him and for a lack of charity. Like here's a guy who the king is trying to kill him. He's after him. And David said, I'm not even going to hurt him. And yet this same guy would slaughter a family because he don't like the way they talk. So he's, he's, he's kind of an interesting character. We're not sure who he is. David committed gross atrocities, yet he's declared by Scripture to be a man after God's own heart. When we read about some of the things that David did, we're like, that doesn't sound like a man after God's own heart. At some level, even when rebounding from his lowest moments, David had a deeply held desire to honor God. This motivation stayed with him until the latter days of his life when he purposed to build something for the name of the Lord which would stand long after he was gone. Why don't you give the Lord a hand clap of praise? He's an on-time God. So we're talking about David and um, in terms of how that his life is so odd because at times he's, he, he looks like he's incredible and other times he does things that make you shake your head. And, um, but he purposed in his heart to build something in the name of the Lord. And so he said, I'm going to do this because I want to honor God. I want to honor God. If you think about your life right now, what do you do and what does it mean? How would you define me honoring God? So if I were to ask you, how do you honor God in your life? What does that look like? If you were to write it down, what would you write down? For David, he said, I'm going to honor God by preparing everything my son needs to build the house of the Lord. That was what he did to honor God. And as David was nearing his death, he called Solomon, his son, to his side. And he said in 1 Chronicles 22 and 7, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. He said, this is what I wanted to do. But sometimes what we want to do and what God wants us to do is two different things. (laughs) He said, this is what I wanted to do. And when David would travel to Shiloh to worship in the tent that traveled with Israel through the wilderness, his heart would smite him as he would look at that old dingy tent because he had a permanent home to live in, but God didn't. There was no permanent structure for God's house. And so 
if you think about it, it would be like you leaving a mansion to come worship God in a tent. And David had a problem with that. He was like, I don't feel right about this. I want to build God a permanent house. And so he wanted to do that. Surely a nation as powerful and as wealthy as his people were could do better than that. And it began to consume him. He thought about it all the time, that he wanted to build a permanent place for God. Now, two things are notable about his plans and his desires. First, David wanted to give God his best, and I think that's important. I think it's important. I don't believe someone else should get your best. I believe God deserves your best. Your best talent, your best time, your best energy, right? That's why... We believe the Bible, we know the Bible teaches that tithing is your first fruit, not necessarily because it's just the percentage, but it's the first, it's the best. It's what I have first. Long before people were paid in currency, they would take their fruit and they would gather it. And the best fruit, the first one that was picked, that's what they would give. And so David wanted to give his best. He was not content to give his master anything less. Second, David did not desire to build it for the sake of his own name. He said, I'm going to build it, quote, unto the name of the Lord. He didn't want credit for it. He didn't want the pastor bringing him up, patting him on the back. He didn't want a plaque somewhere in the building. He didn't want the building dedicated to him. He said, I'm doing it unto the Lord. David teaches us two very important things. Number one, everything we do for God should be our best. Right? You shouldn't be a hero on the job and a zero for God. Right? You shouldn't be a, a workaholic on the job and the pastor can't get you to sweep the, the foyer at church. Right? You shouldn't volunteer for everything on the job because you want to climb the corporate ladder, but you're not signed up for any ministry in the church as a volunteer. God deserves your best. God deserves your best. I've had people who worked for bosses and their boss would come to like a special event, like a drama or something. And uh, this has happened a couple of times actually. And their boss said, oh yeah, we love so-and-so. They're a hard worker. And I'm like, really? I can't get them to sign up for nothing. God deserves your best. God deserves your best. And when we give God our best, we shouldn't want the recognition for it. We shouldn't want the credit for it. It ain't about us. This is God's house, and everything in it belongs to God. And so it's important that when you don't make it about you, and this really tonight, we've kind of focused on this. Maybe the Holy Ghost is wanting to tell somebody something. When it's not about you, you don't care about the credit. When it ain't about you, this is God's house, and everything I do unto God, whether I'm cleaning the bathrooms or I'm doing something that's upfront, significant, and seen, if I do it unto God, it ain't about me anyway. And so David did that. Even if people forget that we had a hand in it, the only name worthy of honor is his anyway. You see, God is never a debtor to anyone. God doesn't owe anyone in this building one thing. No matter what you've done, he never fails to observe any sacrifice made for his kingdom, and he never fails to bless the one making a sacrifice. Though David was not allowed to complete all he wanted to do for God, the Lord took note of his heart 
and what he did do and pronounced a blessing on him. David didn't actually build it himself. His son did. David wanted to. We'll find out why in a moment. His son ended up building it. But notice what the prophet Nathan declared. Also the Lord telleth thee, telling this of David, that he will make thee an house. God was like, I'm not going to allow you to build my house. Solomon's going to do that. But you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to build you a house. You can't outgive God. No sacrifice you make will ever go unrewarded by God. This declaration may have been both a literal house, but what we definitely know was it was a spiritual fulfillment. When God told David, I'm going to make you a house, if you think about it, he was an heir to the house of David, and he would forever sit on the throne, even in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came from the lineage of David. And so when David said, I want to build a house for God, God says, you're not going to do it. Your son is. David said, I want to build it unto God. I want him to get the credit. God said, because you want to do that, I'm going to bless you with the house, a spiritual house. In fact, the Savior of the world is going to come from your family. Can I tell you, you never sacrifice or give to God and then him not repay you a hundredfold. A hundredfold. I think of people who come to God, first-generation Christians. And they come, and, and you know, they, maybe they were drinking, or they were on drugs, or maybe their life was a mess. And they, and they get all cleaned up, and they make a lot of sacrifices and a lot of changes in their life. And then two or three, their children and their children's children go on to be pastors and missionaries. The blessing the blessing that God bestowed upon that one person, right? My grandfather's mother, Granny Landry, you've heard me tell the story of her before. She didn't have a license. I don't know that she ever worked a public job, and she was a single mother um, raising children in a very hard, scrabble life. But she honored God, served God her whole life. And there were over 30 pastors, preachers, and missionaries out of that one lady, that one lineage. At her funeral, there were rows and rows and rows of preachers and missionaries and pastors because of that one lady. God told David, I'm going to build you a house. Probably wasn't talking about an actual house. He was talking about a spiritual house, a lineage, right? An ongoing generational blessing that long after he would go, they would say, my grandfather David started this. And the blessings of God are upon me because of him. How many believe that your children can get manifold blessings because of your relationship with God? They can have more than you ever had, see more than you've ever seen because you determined, I'm going to keep serving God. God will always do more for us than we can do for him. Whatever the exact meaning and fulfillment of God's promise to David was, it does illustrate a principle that we must always remember when we're serving God, that God always does more for us than we can do for Him. The manifold benefits and rewards for serving God and being a part of God's kingdom are not worthy to be compared with even our greatest devotion. Think of the most sacrificial thing you have ever done for God. The most difficult thing you've ever done. Maybe it was quitting something. Maybe it was an offering that you gave. Maybe it was working on something. 
Can I tell you that's like a 2% down payment on the blessing God gives you? At the end of your life, I promise you, you will never, ever, ever, ever make this statement. I wish I had done less for God because there wasn't enough in it for me. I promise you when you get ready to close your eyes for the last time, what will be crossing your mind is uh, what really paid off was what I did for God. What really blessed me, what I really got, what really returned back to me was what I did for God. That's what paid off. First, it's hard for any of us to be honest with you, to take a look at the cross and call anything that we do sacrifice. Right? Even when we talk about a sacrificial offering. When you think about what he did on the cross, can we even call it sacrifice? Oh, can you sacrifice and come to an extra service? Or can you sacrifice and come to a work day? Can we even call it sacrifice and look at the cross honestly? He's been so good to us. <laughs> I mean, when you think about the sacrifice that he made for us, our feeble efforts pale in comparison. Secondly, the daily benefits of kingdom service also eclipse whatever price tag may be on them. I'm blown away by people who live immoral, sinful lifestyles and then, of course, reap the rewards of that um, over time. We know sin is pleasurable for a season, so if you talk to a sinner who's still in the honeymoon season, they're like, ooh, best life I've ever lived, man, having a great time, drinking, smoking, do what I want to do. Let the honeymoon go by, and they age 20 years and five years, and their family's a mess, and they're, you know, they spent time. Then they'll be the first one to tell you, you know what? Sin ain't worth it. Sin ain't worth it. I'm blown away by people that live that lifestyle, endure the hardships of sin, and then still go to hell. And yet, living for God is the best life there is to live, and the real reward is we get to go to heaven. The payoff, the reward, the benefits of serving God are out of this world, literally out of this world. David wanted to build a temporal house. God promised him an eternal one. David was like, I'm going to build you a house. God said, that's cute and that wonderful. Thank you for that temporal house. But I'm going to build you a house that will not rust, corrupt, fall down, an eternal one. There's a similar promise to us. 2 Corinthians 5 and 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, meaning if we die tonight, this earthly tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The Bible calls our body a tent. And when you die, what do they do? They just kind of fold the tent up, put it in a box. And if you're not serving God, that's the end of the story, really, except you go on to, unfortunately, separation from God. But the Word of God says, if our earthly house, this tent were dissolved, that's okay. Because we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's payoff. Serve God for 70 years, 50 years, 30 years down here, and you get to spend eternity in heaven. Man, what a payoff. What a payoff. You can never, ever outgive God. So David wanted to build the temple. And I hurry on. David began the process of building the temple. 
But God explained to him that he would not allow it. You ever had God tell you no? If you can't remember a time God telling you no, I'm going to say you ain't listening. <laughs> right? You ain't listening. But the, the Bible says in 1 Chronicles 22 and 8, But the word of the Lord came to me saying, talking about David, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and you have made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. David, I appreciate what you're doing. I, I honor what you're doing. In fact, if you think about it, many of these battles that he shed blood in was God-ordained. It wasn't like he was doing it against, the, against God. But God said, it's a good thing, but you're not the one that's going to do it. Have you ever had a vision for a ministry or you had an idea and you thought, man, this is a great idea. Pastor's going to love this. This is going to change the world. This is going to be awesome. And then you go to the pastor and say, this is a great idea. And you said, yes, it is, but you're not going to do it. <laughs> yes. Some people in this room have actually heard that. That's not an easy thing to accept. What if the pastor told you, you've shed a lot of blood, so nope, you're not going to do this. You've crossed a lot of swords, right? You've gotten a lot of arguments. People don't like you. For whatever reason, you're not the person to do it, but it's a great idea. In fact, we're going to do it, but somebody else is going to do it. I decree, so you increase. <laughs> we'll find out how much of you is in there. That's what God told David. Great idea. You're not going to do it. In fact, your son's going to do it. He's gonna, it's going to be called Solomon's Temple. What? How can it be called Solomon's Temple? I put everything together. I'm the one that put He just come along in the last seven years and stuck it up. But David was okay with that. Initially, he wasn't, but he got around to the idea. The blood of multiple battles that stained David's hands rendered him unfit in God's house to construct the house. Just because the Lord says no to something we desire does not automatically mean we've displeased Him. Just because God tells you no doesn't mean He's angry at you. It might be that His plan precludes some other pursuits. When God refused to allow David to do what he wished in building God's house, David's response to this disappointment initially was notable. Now, being upset would have been an easily fleshly reaction. Why should someone else get the credit for what I dreamed up? It's my idea. I'm not going to be a part of helping build Solomon's temple. When it should be David's temple. But rather than pout about what he could not do, David applied his efforts to do what he could do. What if I started a building campaign tonight? Now, I'm setting you up because we're probably going to have this conversation for too long. <laughs> you guys always get the, you get the first dibs on this kind of thing Wednesday night. But what if I said, we're going to start a building campaign to do something in this building, but you won't live long enough to see it? How motivated would you be to give? Would you give knowing you would never sit on those pews? Would you give knowing that you would never enjoy the reward of your giving? That'd be a difficult ask, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, I'm not even going to get to see it. I mean, what? David said, you know what? I'm not going to see it, but my children will. 
My son will. So I'm going to do everything I possibly can do to make sure that God's house is built. It can't be about us. We got to believe and know that everything that we give and sacrifice and invest in, if we're not around to see the end result, that's okay. If God tarries, my children will worship in this building. My grandchildren will pray at these altars and be baptized in that baptistry and see people bring, be brought to God because of the sacrifices I made. You got to be okay with that. David was. David commanded, the Bible says, to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he set masons to rot stones to build the house. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, for the doors of the gates, and for the joinings, and the brass, abundance without weight. The cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians, and brought much cedar wood to David. And David said, Chronicles 22, 2-5, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. And the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding. I didn't even know this was a word. Magnifical. <laughs> I'd be using that if I'd known that was a real word. That was a magnifical shot right there, Brother White. <laughs> That's a magnifical tie you got on there, Brother. That's a great word, magnifical. Fame and glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparations for it. So David, the Bible says, prepared abundantly before his death. David said, what I'm doing is going to outlive me, and I'm okay with that. Before his death, David was, an inten was intentional about communicating with his vision to his successor. He was okay. Each of us should take this lesson to heart. We need to communicate to the next generation the things that God has put in our hearts. David told his son, Solomon, listen, I want you to know, God is going to use you to build this house. He put it in his heart. He communicated to it. We need to communicate to our children that if God tarries, you are going to teach in these classrooms. You're going to sing in that choir. You're going to preach this message. You're going to shine a light of apostolic truth. Put it in their heart as David put it in Solomon's heart. Solomon, you are going to do this. God has called you to do it, and I'm giving you everything that I can to make sure it happens. Solomon accepted David's charge. And that is why Solomon's temple became such a magnificent or magnificent place. Still talked about today. I want to do what God calls me to do. And if it's preparing for the next generation, I want to do it. If it's God calling me to do it myself, I want to do it. Whatever God purposes and calls me to do, I want to do it. Whatever that looks like for you, the key to fulfillment is to embrace it as your own. If God calls me to clean the toilets, I want to be the best toilet cleaner that there is. If God calls me to, to sweep the parking lot or preach the gospel, I want to do whatever God calls me to do. And I want to do it to the best of my ability. Stand with me. In his book, An Unhurried Life, following Jesus' rhythms of work and rest, author Alan Fadling he crafts a contemporary parable about a king and two servants. Each of these two men had a deep desire to please the king. But they had two drastically different approaches to making the king happy. One of them 
one of the servants, he was consumed with fear of not pleasing his master. And so he got up early every single morning before everybody else and he started to work. He would immediately begin to invest himself in the list of everything that he thought the king wanted done. Not wanting to intrude on the king's busy schedule, he never asked the king about what was on the list or what he wanted to do. He just himself imagined what he thought the king would want. And man, he started early and he worked till dark. His consume, he consumed every day from first light to late in the evening, scurrying from project to project. And then there was the other servant. He was eagerly also to make his master happy. Yet he would rise early in the morning, and the first thing that he would do would not jump into a project. He would take a few moments. He would go to the king, and he would ask him, what do you want to accomplish today? Only after having that conversation would he then proceed to work that day? Now, it is possible that the first servant may have completed several tasks by the time the second service had finished his conversation with the king. But which one was pleasing the king more? Genuine productivity is not getting as much as you could do for God done. It's doing the good work that God actually has given us for that day. God's timing and purpose are perfect. We need to hear from Him. We need to understand and know that the most important thing that we can do is to find out what the King wants me to do. God, what do you want me to do? What's my purpose? What do you, what do you desire for me to do? And I, as you've heard me say so many times before, God's purpose in your life is not some mystical thing that you stumble across one day and go, oh, this is what I was created to do. I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, what I was created to do was hold a microphone and preach. You know what I did? I did everything that was asked of me to do around the kingdom of God. God's purpose is found in you doing whatever needs to be done. And in that doing, in that process, it's not a magic treasure box or, or some kind of a form that you fill out that suddenly you're made aware of this grand purpose that God has for your life. You discover God's purpose in your life by looking around and whatever needs to be done, you do it. And in the doing and in the working and in the volunteering, you discover your purpose. There's people right now that are in ministries right now that told me years ago, I don't like that. That ain't my purpose. I don't want to do that. And then they started doing it. And they're like, hey, you know what? I kind of like this. Man, this is great. I really feel fulfilled. This is... And now they lead the ministry. How did you know that? You started doing whatever needed to be done. God's purpose in your life may not be what you expect. David thought he was going to build a house. God said, nope, you're going to prepare a house for your son to build. So the idea is do. God, whatever you call me to do, I want to do it. Whatever's available, I want to do it. Lift your hands if you would say, God, I make myself available to you. God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. And in that doing and in that working and in that volunteering and being a part of something that's grander than me, God, that will outlive me, something that has eternal reward. God, I want to lay my treasures up in heaven where and rust, moth and rust cannot corrupt or decay. And in that, God, in that treasure, that laying up treasures, I can discover a purpose that you have for me. In Jesus' name. And everyone say amen. God bless you. You are dismissed in Jesus' name.